Good morning. Well, you may have picked up on a theme this morning. Uh, it is joy. And we are in joy. Uh, it is something that we feel very, very familiar with. Uh, we think about the small joys and the large joys, the joys of simply waking up in the morning to a bright new day, the joy uh, of the laughter of a, of a little child. I, I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of, of little babies, and uh, little babies, I don't know why they exude joy. I know those of you who are parents of young children, you're like at three in the morning, there's a little less joy being exuded by little babies, but on Sunday mornings, I tend to find them very joyful. Uh, of course, there's one little baby particularly that I like to, uh, uh, like to see on video from Washington, D.C., my little grandchild, and, and yesterday I got to see her, and, and, and my son put the camera up on the sofa, and, uh, and my little granddaughter kept coming up over the edge of the sofa, and her eyes would get bright when she saw, I think not me, but the bright screen of the iPhone, you know, that was there. You know, kids love screens. Uh, uh, but her eyes would light up, and she would smile, and I would smile, and, and there is some joy there. Joy is something that I think every human being has experienced at some point in time, and yet... Here in this passage, we see that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. That is, that joy is something that the Holy Spirit works in us. And so how is it that we understand that it can be a fruit of the Spirit if it's something that every single human being we know experiences more or less at different times in their life? And to understand that, I think we really have to think about what joy really is now, the word joy is very closely related in the New Testament to the word rejoice. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, it's effectively uh, the noun uh, version and, uh, and a verb version of the same word. Uh, in other words, joy is something that we have. Rejoice is something that we do. And, uh, and so those two words are very closely connected. Uh, but as I was thinking about it, how do you even begin to define it? Aristotle defined joy uh, as that thing that is in between uh, pain on the one end and pleasure on the other. Uh, philosophers who came after him eventually leaked the word or concept of joy into the idea of pleasure in and of itself. I looked up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary and they say joy is the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. A good uh, uh, synonym they suggest is delight after all. They must follow the ancient Greek philosophers there. And I think all of these things are helpful. But what does it mean that the Holy Spirit produces joy in the life of a Christian? How is this something that is added to us because we've put our faith and trust in Jesus. Well, to understand that, I think we have to understand more broadly the biblical concept of joy. So we're going to look at it uh, under three headings because that's what we do here on Sunday mornings. The first thing is I want us to understand that human beings are designed by God for joy. Secondly, I want us to see what is, according to the scriptures, the culmination of joy and thirdly, I want us to talk just a little bit about the durability 
of joy, that it lasts by, uh, that some are designed for joy. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the story in the Bible, you'll find that God created uh, a beautiful world. He did it in six days. And after each day, and after each part of the creation, God said, that is good. And then on the sixth day after he had created the cattle and livestock and all of the rest, he created humanity, uh, man, man and woman, humanity. He created them and he said, this is very good. This is very good. And God gave this humanity that he created. He put him in a perfect place called the garden and he gave him a job and that was to be his representative on the earth. Why? Because God had made him in a very special way. God had made humanity in the image of God. Now, I love that word, and sometimes we hear that word, and we say, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it means that we are a reflection of God's character, uh, of his holiness, of his glory, that humanity in the garden Uh, before they rebelled against God, were a beautiful and perfect reflection of the glory of God. Now, if that is true, and it is true, that's what the Bible tells us, that means that humanity was created for great joy. Because if humanity was going to reflect the nature and the glory of God, then that means they would reflect the perfect utterly perfect and unchangeable joy of God. For joy, for joy is something that God experiences in himself without end. And so humanity was created to be a reflection of that, to enjoy that, to be a part of the joy of God himself. That is what we were designed to do. And not only were we designed to enjoy the joy of God himself, but the joy that came from the goodness of all of his creation. And so when we looked at a cloud or a leaf on a tree, or we looked at a chasm that, you know, stretched out before us, it would give us joy because it was perfectly reflecting God's creation intent for that particular thing, whatever it was. We were created for joy. That's the way God designed us. That is why uh, people kind of in our heritage, they came up with this document called the Confession of Faith. Uh, Now, they did this in a place called Westminster uh, in London, uh, England. And so it's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And they decided that they would make, you know, a really thick, really thoughtful confession of faith. And then they would give us two things called catechisms, which are ways for us to learn about the theology of that confession of faith. A larger one and a shorter one. They were not really super creative. The larger one was larger and the shorter one was shorter, right? You know, there it is. You know, Presbyterians may be a lot of things. Creative is not one of them, uh, right? And so anyway, in the shorter catechism, they led off that summary of what the Bible taught with the question, what is the chief end of man? What is, in other words, what's the purpose of humanity? Why are we here? And the answer to that question uh, was that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
And I love it because whenever we see that, as Jonathan Edwards knew, as theologians have known, as they have looked at that simple phrase, that is not two different things. We say, well, that, that gives man two purposes. One is to glorify God and one is to enjoy him forever. But those are one and the same. We glorify God by finding our joy, our enjoyment in him. You see, this is what humanity is designed to do, to find great joy in God. Now, that's uh, the first point, that this is a fruit of the Spirit because it is a way for us to fulfill what God designed us to do. But then let's ask ourselves the question. We're going to apply it. We're going to apply stuff right after the first point. How do we do in enjoying God, in giving him glory and enjoying him forever. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that my, my grade on that would be pretty low. I'm, I'm not even sure. I don't know what the, what is passing these days? Who's a student and can tell me what a passing score is on a test? Is it 60? 70? 80? Does no one here pass test? What do we think? 60? Is 60 a passing score? 70? There seems to be some confusion. I'm going to take that as an indication that all of our students have never made a failing grade on a test. Congratulations. That's really impressive. Your pastor has failed many of them. And, uh, and back when I was in school, 60 was a failing, uh, a failing score, just in case you were wondering. And uh, I, I, have seen, I have seen tests come back with 10. And I'm like, is that 10 out of 10? And it's like, no, that's 10 out of 100. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's very, very discouraging. You may be grading my sermon right now, and you may be thinking right now, I think you're at about a 10. And that's okay. I know you do that, and I love you anyway. But... So, whenever we think about whether we are scoring well or whether we are scoring poorly on this objective to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, I think if we're honest, we would say, well, I would like to say it depends on the day, but most days, I'm not thinking about God that much at all. I'm not really thinking about reflecting His character in his goodness, his glory here in this world. I'm not really thinking a whole lot about finding my joy in him. We tend to be focused on the circumstances of our life. So yesterday, for those of you who follow sports, your joy may have been affected by the team that you watched and whether they performed the way you hoped they would perform or whether they scored at the time you thought they would score or whether they won or whether they lost and you say, my joy was affected by that or, or if you watch sports today, you might feel the same way. Some of you uh, are connected to children that you love and have grown up in your home. You know, there's an old parental expression that a parent is only as happy as their least happy child. Now, it's not supposed to be that way. That is a truism in the sense that it is generally true 
that parents are only as happy as their least happy child, but that's because we're looking to the child to be the source of our joy. We are looking at them to be that thing that gives us enjoyment in our life. Or there might be some of you who, who actually work for a living, one or two of you maybe, uh, and you work for a living and you may say, well, I have joy, I enjoy life when my work is going well, when my supervisor says I'm doing a good job, uh, when I get that bump up in pay, whenever my project goes well, uh, whenever that thing is accomplished. You may uh, be in the medical industry and you may have joy when the medicine works and it actually reduces the virus or the, the bacteria or the problem that's in the patient or when that surgery is effective and, and it may be whatever measurement in your life. And you say, my joy kind of goes up and down depending on those circumstances in my life. The kind of joy that is a work of the Spirit in our life, the kind of joy that is the fruit of that Spirit's work is a joy that is not dependent on those ever-changing circumstances of life. Whether it's your work or whether it's that medicine or whether it's that sports team or whether it's your children because it is rooted in God. So what is that? What is that culmination of joy? Well, I think you probably know what it's going to be. You're sitting here in a church and you're like, I bet he's going to say God, right? You know, just as a side note, the, the old Bible school answer is always correct. If a preacher asks a question, just say Jesus. Uh, and that will probably be the right answer. And of course, I'm going to say that. That's what the shorter catechism ever. For he is the culmination of joy. I love it in Philippians chapter 4. Uh, verse 4, we read uh, the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote about the fruit of the Spirit, and there he's telling a church in a different part of the Roman Empire, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear that, uh, there are a couple things I realize. One, that this verse, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice, is not a, a platitude or a suggestion, but it's actually a command. It is an imperative. Uh, the Apostle Paul is telling a bunch of human beings like you and me that they should have an active joy all the time. Rejoice in the Lord always. And whenever I hear that, I think, what is this apostle doing trying to tell me how to feel in life? How can he command me to have joy, an active joy, all the time? I mean, doesn't he understand sometimes life is difficult? And you know, I get so hung up on the idea that the apostle Paul would have the gall to tell me how to feel that I actually missed the command itself. It's not saying be in a state of joy perpetually and that's it. Notice what it says. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. We almost just jump right past that. What does that mean? It means I'm commanding you to find your joy in God all the time. Or I love it. Uh, the way the psalmist uh, talks about it over in Psalm chapter 73 what a beautiful uh, text it is. After uh, 
this psalmist, it says a psalm of Asaph, so I'm assuming it was a guy named Asaph, and he wrote this beautiful psalm, and in this psalm, he talks about the, the truth of the fact that he's struggling. He doesn't have joy. He is actually experiencing quite a bit of misery. He says he almost stumbled. Why? Because his eyes began to be fixed on the successes of people who didn't honor God. People who did the exact opposite of what God commanded. He says, I looked at them and you know what? They were fat, they were fat and sleek. I don't know how you can be both of those. Uh, I mean, I am, I'm trying my best to be both of those, but I don't, I don't know how you do that. Uh, but he looked at them and basically he says, they're enjoying all the success. Things are going well for them. And his heart was really sad. There was no joy there. But then at the end of this psalm, in verse uh, 25 and 26, he finally comes to his senses and he says to God, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What did he finally realize? Circumstances, wealth, success, those are never going to be the thing that satisfies my soul. He looks to God and says, you are it. I love it. He says, you are my portion, my strength and my portion forever. In other words, I am going to look to you for what gives me well-being, for what enables me to have that emotion of success and enjoyment. He says, you are the only one I can look to for that. He's directed. And so Paul says, not just rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because he is the culmination of our joy. We see it so beautifully. And of course, that's Old Testament language. Uh, There, Asaph is talking about God the Father. But I love it. Jesus tells his followers that that is true of God the Son as well. That's true of Jesus. On the night before he died in John chapter 16, I said last week we could do this whole series and never leave the uh, upper room discourse. That is the conversation Jesus had with his disciples on the last night of his life before his death. Uh, I love it. Jesus tries to help his disciples understand that there are different kinds of joy. And uh, even when we are supposed to be filled with joy, sometimes sorrow comes into our life. And in John 16, he's trying to be honest about that with his followers. Uh, In verse 20 of John 16, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I love it. What is Jesus saying? One, uh, Jesus reminds us how we have families here that have more than one child. I like that. That's helpful to know. Because God gives them a beautiful amnesia. 
during the middle of having the child, everybody's just looking at me like, you don't know this is true. In the middle of having a baby, nobody's thinking, man, I want to do this like five times in my life, right? Uh, but it says that even though there's anguish there, uh, that when the baby is born, there's joy because God has brought a human being, a, a child into the world and into your family. And so that, that gives you the opportunity to have more children later on because you, you're like, oh yeah, it's all joy when a baby comes into the world. Jesus says that idea is the way it works with what you disciples are about to go through. He says that there's coming a time where the world is going to have joy, but you're going to have sorrow, but that's going to change. And then your sorrow will be turned to joy. Now, I want us just to think about that for a second. Why does Jesus say that the world will rejoice when the disciples are sorrowful? Here, Jesus is talking about the fact that within 24 hours, he's going to be dead. He will have suffered the ignominious, you know, the uh, very disgraceful, very difficult death of a Roman crucifixion. He will have had a crown of thorns placed on his head, nails put through his hands and feet, a spear stuck into his side. He will have been lashed uh, by a cruel whip invented to extend pain as far as possible. He will have been mocked and spit on, and that's his next 24 hours. And he's telling his disciples, look, when this happens, when you see this happen, it is going to hurt your heart. It's going to break your heart. And you're going to have nothing but sorrow. He says, but weirdly enough, and I think this is fascinating, he says the world will rejoice when they see that. Head scratcher in a way. Why would the world rejoice at the death of Jesus? Well, the reason why the world would rejoice at the death of Jesus is when someone claims to be God come in the flesh, when someone tells you the way to honor God and to walk after him is to love him and believe in him, when someone comes and says that your life will only be complete if you're a follower of mine, the world is glad to get rid of a guy like that. The world is glad to continue in their self-contentment and delusion that we are actually the captain of our own soul, that we are in control of our own life. And we would love to get rid of anyone who suggests otherwise. And so in Jesus, this one who claimed to be God come to earth, the one come from the Father, the one who you must put your faith in to enjoy eternal life, when he dies, the world says, dodged a bullet. I'm glad that person who was trying to interfere with my life is gone. But Jesus, and he says, then his followers will have great joy. And what's he referring to when he says that? Well, God not only came as a person and lived a perfect life and died on a cross, he did do all of those things. And he suffered that death not because it was just a big drama or it was an interesting plot twist in the movie, but he did it because the rebellion against God that every human being has been guilty of, that reality that we have not done what we were designed to do, which is to reflect his glory and have joy in him. He died on a cross to pay the consequence for all of that rebellion, what the Bible refers to as sin, missing the mark, you know. Jesus dies to bear the penalty that that deserves. 
And then the joy comes. Why? Because he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And then those disciples who were distraught at the suffering and death of Jesus suddenly had joy. Because everything Jesus said he was and that he would do is confirmed in the resurrection after his death. So Jesus says, then you will have a kind of joy that cannot be taken away. Why? Because the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus cannot be undone. It's history. It's not theory. It's not philosophy. It's not ephemeral like a mood. It's not the team who wins today but loses next week. It's not the job that goes well today but you lose in a year. It is this thing that will never change for all eternity that Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. All that is necessary for us to finally be restored to the design that God had for us that we might reflect the glory of God. And that we might enjoy him forever. He says that joy cannot be taken away because the victory cannot be undone. Oh, I love it. The psalmist in Psalm 73 tells us that God the Father is his portion. He fills his heart. There's nothing in heaven that he desires but him. And Jesus says, when you're a follower of mine, even though sorrow might be there temporarily, there is a deep and abiding joy because of who I am and what I have accomplished. And the Spirit then applies this joy in God the Father and God the Son to our life. And it's a fruit that grows up in our life. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You see, if we go back to just the dictionary definition of joy, I love it. The emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Let's apply what we've already thought about and looked at in Scripture to this idea of joy. You know, is this emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune? Well, I would say that we have experienced as followers of Jesus a well-being, success, and good fortune beyond the wildest imaginations of all of humanity. That God would love us so much that he would become a man and die for us. Can you experience more love than that? And the answer is no, you can't. Because he came so far and he gave so much And he showed that it was because he loved you. Or can you have a, I like it, uh, the way it says, good fortune. I'm not sure. Can you you imagine a a better outcome than to actually be brought into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ, to actually be restored or the process of restoration beginning so that we might reflect the glory of God and enjoy him forever, something that can never be changed. And this is the beauty of biblical joy. This is the culmination of joy. This is what comes from the Spirit working in our life. But lastly, and we do need to look at this, is the durability of joy. Durability. I just said it lasts forever. Let's look at another passage or two uh, that talks about that. I love Luke. Uh, In the Gospel of Luke, we find an interesting story in Luke chapter 10 of Jesus sending his some of his followers out on a mission. He tells them to go in his name uh, to bring healing 
to cast out demons, uh, to do the work Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry. And they do that. And they come back in verse 17 of chapter 10, and I love it. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And I love it. Jesus says, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. I love that. That's pretty cool. In other words, yeah, that would give me joy. You're like, yeah, if I could go out, you know, and drive through Colorado Springs, drive up Academy and cast demons out at people walking on the sidewalk, that would be pretty cool. And I think there are some people on Academy that need that. I mean, I'm just, I, I've, Academy is a trip, right? You know, so that would be great. Or if I could drive by St. Francis Hospital or, or, or drive by the hospital, uh, UC Health Hospital up on, uh, on, gosh, I live off the road, Briargate, and, and I was able to just shout out a word and, and suddenly the hospital emptied because everybody in there had been healed. Now, some people are in there having babies, so we don't want them just walking out in the middle of labor, but all the sick ones, they just walk out. I mean, that would give you a little bit of joy, you know? I mean, you would be playing I'm walking on sunshine in the car the whole time you were doing it, right? You know, it's, uh, it, would be, it would be great. And, but yet, notice Jesus says that's, that's, not, that's actually not durable joy. You see, the, the thing is, when we enjoy those successes, even spiritual successes, uh, that's complemented by the reality that we enjoy a lot, of, a lot of spiritual failures as well. And if my joy is connected with how well that, that Bible study went, that talk went, uh, you know, that, that discussion with a friend about the, the, the beauty of Jesus went, or for me, this sermon went, then my joy is going to be very ephemeral. You know, I don't know whether y'all know this or not, but for those of you who listen to sermons like this one or other ones, uh, preachers are head cases. I mean, it's just really simple. Now, I say that, so I'm throwing every other preacher under the bus so I don't feel bad. But I can tell you, there are those messages that you feel like went okay, and then there are those messages you're pretty sure you babbled the entire time. You're, you're, you're surprised nobody stood up in the middle of the message and said, can anyone interpret the tongues this person is speaking, right? You know, you're just not even sure what's going on, right? So if my joy is connected to how well I'm operating in terms of spiritual efficiency, it's going to be very ephemeral. But notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice, do not have this active joy, in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you, I don't think Jesus is saying, don't be happy when things go well for you. People read it that way, and I think that's wrong. That Jesus is not telling the disciples, don't be excited that the spirit worked through you. He's giving a comparative. He's making a lesser to greater argument. He's saying, look, having a great day in ministry is not as important as knowing that God loves you and that your name is written in his book. Uh, we all know that moment of fear, right? When you're traveling to get there after much travel and you're hoping when you give them their name, they find you and that you actually have a room. Has anybody ever experienced them not having a room for you? Yes, I have had that experience. And look, when you arrive there at 10 30, 11 o'clock at night and they say, we do not have you listed there, it is sad. 
It is sad. It is a moment, especially if you have a, a other family members with you and they're all looking at you like, are you an idiot? You don't know how to make a hotel reservation, right? It is very sad. But imagine you get to the end of your life and you get to the gates of heaven. What greater joy, Jesus says, can there be but knowing that someone's going to greet you there and say, yeah, I see your name right here. This is your home. This is where you belong. We've been waiting for you. Jesus has prepared a place for you. Jesus says what should give us great joy is knowing that when we get there, they'll say, we've been expecting you. Your name is written in heaven. What a glorious thing. That's a durable joy. All the rest of the things can come and go. Or let's look lastly at how Peter talks about this durable joy. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter is writing to a church who's beginning to face significant persecution. Things are not in terms of their material well-being. It's not really going particularly well. But I love it because when Peter greets them, he acknowledges the truth that there are a lot of circumstances that are battling against their emotional well-being, their sense uh, that they are the subjects of good fortune. But notice what he says. Blessed be the God, First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's like an echo of Jesus saying, rejoice that your name is written in heaven, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I love it. Because the Bible is not pie in the sky. The Bible is honest. Peter is writing to this group of Christians and he is saying it in beautiful language that I would never come up with in a million years because I am not inspired by the Holy Spirit like he was. Uh, but he writes in this beautiful language, look right now, if necessary, you are enduring various trials. Peter was writing this at the beginning of a reign of a guy named Nero. <laughs> this was not theoretical. These people that he was writing to were beginning to face trials that would lead to their imprisonment, their death, and the death of all those that they loved. They were already facing economic, you know, uh, uh, out, being an economic outlier, being fired from their jobs, being removed from their families. And I love it. Peter says, look, this is happening to you. That's a reality. He says, but even in the midst of that, you, I love it. He says, you are rejoice, rejoicing with joy. That's redundant, just as a side note. You are actively showing joy in your joy. He says, what's definitive about you is not the trial, but it is the joy. Why? Because you know that 
those trials are temporary. But the salvation that God has wrought in Jesus Christ and that you have accepted by faith is permanent. You see, this kind of durable joy is a joy, but because it's affected by circumstances, not because the circumstances don't come that are unfavorable, but because the circumstances pale in the light of, as Paul says elsewhere, the eternal weight of glory. In other words, this suffering is real. This sickness is terrible. This physical defect is is, makes me distraught. This loss of the person I loved is killing me. But in comparison to all that God is and is for me, I get perspective. You see, Christian joy, the kind of joy that comes as a fruit of the work of the Spirit in our life, is an enduring joy. Not because God somehow rewires our emotional system, uh, you know, so that we are like a Stepford wife, you know, Christian style. I am always joyful. Joy is great. I do not feel pain. No. It's in comparison. I feel pain. I struggle. I mourn. But I don't mourn like people who have not experienced the beauty and glory of God. And his eternal salvation on my behalf through Jesus Christ. That always gives me perspective. It gives me a durability in my joy that in spite of circumstances, I can still say it is well with my soul. It's well with my soul. That's joy that's in there because of the unchangeable reality of the person of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has wrought for us. Now, how do we do with this? I don't know about you, but I get a lot of amnesia. I forget this. I begin to act as though Jesus hasn't loved me and given himself for me. I get to be like Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 16th century, who moped around so much so that his wife Katie one day came down in her all-black morning outfit. And Martin Luther said to her, well, who died? Who died, Katie? You're, you're wearing your mourning outfit. He, she says, well, from the way you've been acting, I'm assuming Jesus is still dead. Hey, you smuggled your nun wife out of a convent in a, what was it, a herring barrel. You get what you get, you know? I mean, that's just the deal, you know? But you know what? She was right. And all she was reminding Martin Luther of is you have forgotten what's more true than that difficulty you're facing. See, your joy is gone because you are fixated on the pain or difficulty or suffering that you have brought right into your face instead of keeping the love and the perfect salvation that Jesus has wrought for you close in all the time. May God give us grace to keep things in perspective so that we might have the result of the Spirit's work and that is a deep and abiding joy growing in our heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that you have loved us first. Lord, if if you waited for us, we would never be in a relationship. We would never enjoy you. But you came to us 
in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you will help us today recognize and repent from the reality that we bring everything else in close in our vision. And therefore, there's no room for joy in our life instead of keeping Christ and his work, his love, and his accomplishment before us all time. Lord, I pray that we will increasingly be known as a group of people in which joy is growing because of the work of the Spirit in the lives of those who have believed in you. Oh Lord, we thank you for it. We pray that you will continue to grow us, that we might one day enjoy that perfect joy that we will find in you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.